Well, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. We are in the series that we've uh, began uh, about five weeks ago, going through the book, Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. Series is called Living and Looking, Living for Christ and Looking for His Return. And the first, roughly the first three chapters, Paul is uh, emphasizing uh, aspects of Christian living and encouraging uh, the believers there at the church at Thessalonica. And then from about chapter 4 and 5, maybe the middle of chapter 4, are some of the most important sections and passages regarding the second coming of Christ, passages that speak to uh, the rapture, and we'll talk about that uh, in a little more detail when we get to it, but it's an important and vital study in one of Paul's early letters. Some think it was probably his second letter that he wrote, Galatians being the first, and he wrote to this church that uh, we've mentioned this in the introduction, the first message that Paul and his uh, Silas and uh, some others planted this church on their visit to the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica as a city is still existing today. It's called Thessaloniki. It's kind of up in the northeast section of Greece, and it is uh, uh, the second biggest city in Greece today. It was a port city, so it was a very uh, cosmopolitan, um, diverse community. And Paul, by the uh, as his travel on his second missionary journey, you can read about it in Acts 17, planted this church, shared the gospel, people got saved, and as a result, uh, people were not happy with what was happening with a church being planted there by uh, primarily a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And so he wrote this letter as a result of being uh, basically run out of town under the threat of his life. And several months went by, not exactly sure, maybe over a year, and he sent Timothy, his companion, to go check on the church. And then when Timothy met up, back up with Paul in the city of Corinth, uh, he gave Paul a good report of what was happening there, that they were remaining faithful and strong, and it was a great encouragement. So Paul took pen to parchment and wrote what we call this letter, First. Thessalonians. So, so this morning, as we just continue along, I direct your attention in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 through 20. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 17 through 20. By the way, we don't say a lot about this, but we, the reason we have these Bibles, these are ESVs, and uh, they're nice-sized uh, print. If you do not have a Bible, we encourage you to take one of these. Uh, if you do not have an ESV, uh, we encourage you to take it, and if you so desire, you don't want to add it to your library of 15 other Bibles, uh, then uh, we encourage you to uh, perhaps uh, give a little donation. But it's there for the taking, and it was uh, appreciative of a donation of a family in the church. So that's why we have these back there for you to use, okay? And so if you use it uh, in, on Sunday, you'll be able to follow along, and I encourage you to have a paper Bible. Electronics is good, but there's just something about having, uh, I don't want to say real Bible, but, but the word in, in that form, because I believe as a student of Scripture, it helps you to better understand 
before, after, to see the flow of things. I use my iPad, I use my phone, I use all those things, and it's all good, but still get a Bible that uh, you can open up, turn to. And one of the blessings I think I mentioned to you is I have, uh, uh, I have my dad's Bible that he marked in and read through uh, many years, and I'm glad he was able to pass that down. And so have something to pass down. What are you going to do, pass down your phone to your kids? Well, you can pull up the app. That's you know. So have something written down. You know that you take notes. It's a it's a great blessing for your family. All right, First Thessalonians, chapter two, verse seventeen through twenty. Paul and the Word of God by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit's writes. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Verse 18. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. This morning, I want to focus on one aspect of verse 18 that as I was studying, I just really uh, kind of wanted to kind of delve into it a little bit more, and it perhaps uh, brought up some subjects and topics, and spent a little time on verse 18, verse 18, where Paul says that uh, he wanted to come to visit them personally, But he says, uh, again and again was his desire, verse 18, if you can find it, put it up there. It says, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered this, hindered us. Uh, If you have the NIV, it says, Satan blocked our way. Satan hindered or blocked Paul's plans to visit them, his desires to return back to the church at Thessalonica to visit the church. And so as I read that, I thought it would be important to say, how do we balance that statement? We talk about the sovereignty of God. How does the sovereignty of God work? But yet Paul clearly says that the devil, Satan, hindered his desire to visit them. Can Satan uh, block or thwart the sovereign purposes of God? How does Satan hinder the work of God today? Paul certainly had no issue in affirming and believing in a literal, personal devil. And we're going to spend a little time uh, looking at that this morning. If you, uh, I did a, a word search just in the epistles of Paul, and about 17 times the apostle Paul himself, not the totality of Scripture, but Paul himself uses the term devil, Satan, adversary about 17 times. Times. These aren't on the screen, but these will be familiar. In Romans uh, 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 11.14, remember Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Paul tells in Ephesians 4.27 to give no opportunity to the devil. Many, many more, but those are familiar to many of us. I have used this quote uh, several times. C.S. Lewis always provides a good reminder when we talk about the subject of spiritual warfare and Satan. 
C.S. Lewis says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and an unhealthy interest in them. Either way, they themselves are equally pleased by both errors. Do you see what he's saying? Then we talk about the subject, we can, call it, we can fall into one or two pits. Uh, one where we just begin to have a rational approach to Scripture and, and deny most of the supernatural in the Bible. And so certainly the belief in a devil or Satan is just kind of mythological. We don't really, you know, uh, a red suit with a, with a pitchfork, that's the thing of Halloween, and certainly rational uh, people in the 21st century do not believe such nonsense. That's one extreme. The other extreme is that you're so devil conscious, there's a demon behind every rock. Right? And everything is a demon. Everything is a, is a devil. And I've been around people like that. You know, everything is a demon. You cough, you've got a demon. You sneeze, you've got a demon. In fact, the, the, the phrase, God bless you, came as people believing that you were expunging a devil and they wanted to say, God bless you, so when you breathe back, you didn't take it back in. That's free. That's, that's some useless trivia, my wife says, I store in my brain. But Lewis is right, and both errors exist in today's church. And our goal, our goal always is to say, what is the balance of Scripture? The Word of God provides us a balance, and we don't want to go off into any extreme. So this morning, the title of this message, and actually I'm going to do it in two parts, but the title of the message this morning is the enemy of the church. Obviously, Satan is the enemy of God, the enemy, but the enemy of the church because 1 Thessalonians is a letter written to the church at Thessalonica, but he's also, a lot of the things here are written about church life. And so, the enemy of the church, and we're going to look at part one today. Just let me say a few more introductory remarks. That as we develop this, this is what falls under the category, perhaps, of spiritual warfare. And as I said, uh, I, you know, if, you, if we actually had Christian bookstores anymore, and you look in the Christian sections, and anything having to do, you'll see just all sorts of craziness written about devils and demons, and how we are to act, and how we are to respond. I'm not going to go down that road. I want to say, God, what does the Word of God have to say Help us to be balanced. We certainly, as I said, we don't want to fall into either extremes. But, but in chapter 2, verse 18, Paul says, when he says, Satan hindered us, we want to look at the full counsel of God's Word. Obviously, we can't exhaust the subject. This is a, this is a, this is a subject that's worthy of a series. You know, We talk about spiritual warfare, the believer's armor. There's just a lot to say about it. And we're not going to be exhaustive, so I'll probably not say a lot of things that I wish I had later, but I just want to kind of, kind of get into it a little bit. So let's look at the context, chapter 2, verse 18, if we could put that back on the slide. The context, remember the context, that's always important. Paul wanted and had a desire to go back and visit the church at Thessalonica. He, he had been run out of town, that was his personal desire, and perhaps as he sent Timothy earlier, he was concerned that they would think 
that he had neglected them because he hadn't returned. He wanted to make sure that he knew that his desire was to spend time with them, to check on them. Paul, his heart was a shepherd, and so he was concerned over why that he was not been able to return. And so he tells them that even though it was our desire, he says again and again, anytime you see repetition in Scripture, it just is an emphasis of repeated, like Paul is saying, I, just, I never gave up uh, desiring my desire uh, to come visit you, but Satan hindered us. The word hindered that's used in the ESV is, in the, is used in a military sense of breaking up or cluttering up a road as to make it impassable by an opposing army. Destroy a bridge, uh, blow up. Uh, I know that uh, when uh, we left Afghanistan, even though you know a lot of us think there could have been a lot more, uh, there were uh, runways that should have been destroyed, blown up, so that the enemy wouldn't have access to take planes and, and whatever to, to leave. They'd blow up the runway so they were unusable. So they wanted to hinder the enemy. Well, he uses that word, uh, and it literally means to cut into. Satan cut into uh, this desire and blocked our way, as I said, the NIV uses. How did Satan thwart Paul's effort? Well, I'm not going to, uh, and if you want to just keep something there in 1 Thessalonians, I'm not going to go back and read everything back in Acts 17, but just to refresh your memory, uh, it's important to remind ourselves of when Paul arrived at Thessalonica and what took place there. So take your Bibles, go back to Acts chapter 17, and I just want to remind us of a few things. Acts 17, and I'll pick it up in verse 2, and it says that when Paul uh, came to Thessalonica, that he went into the city as was his custom, 17 verse 2, and on three Sabbath days, three weeks or so, uh, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He's in the synagogue He's teaching these Jews that are living in Gentile territory, part of the dispersion, uh, and, and that they arrived there. And so there was enough Jews in Thessalonica to organize a synagogue. So that was always Paul's habit to go there, first of all, and open up the Scriptures. He could open up what Scriptures? The Old Testament, and, and teach them about Christ. And so as he taught them, verse 4, uh, about Christ, the Bible says that some of them... Some of these Jews in the synagogue were persuaded. That means they uh, crossed the line into faith, and they joined Paul and Silas. But not only fellow Jews, it also says some very devout Greeks. So there were Gentiles that attended the synagogue with the Jews because they, were, uh, they certainly were being fed and, and nourished and sympathetic to, uh, to the God of Israel. And so not only did many Jews, but many devout Greeks... And he also says some leading women. That's kind of a, a term that would imply some women of professional means came to saving faith in Christ. But then it goes on to say in verse 5 of Acts 17 that many of the Jews were jealous. And when you see that phrase, the Jews, it's not an indictment of everyone who was Jewish. That oftentimes when it says the Jews, it's referring to that uh, group of leaders or uh, those that opposed 
the work of Christ. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, and that group, the scribes, uh, sometimes just shorthand, the Jews. So there was leaders here, we know it was leaders, who did not like them coming to faith in Christ because they knew that that power they enjoyed by these, by these people, now they're going to be converts to Christianity, uh, that they were jealous of that. And so what if you go on and read chapter 17, they organized a mob and came to attack uh, this group, Paul and Silas, and this individual by the name of Jason, who it was like kind of a, a manager. He wasn't a rabbi, but tradition tells us he was somewhat like a manager that oversaw the business affairs. He was kind of like an administrator of the synagogue, and they dragged him out and were ready to kill him. But Jason, in order, verse 9, that in order to secure Paul and Silas to leave there, uh, basically had to pay off this mob as a security that uh, if, they would, if they would take this bribe, this money, that they would not go after Paul and Silas. But the deal was Paul and Silas had to leave and weren't allowed to come back. Thus, here he is down the road, perhaps a year or so later, and that's why he's not able to go back. Now, now he recognizes and, and affirms that this violence that was a barrier, that that was something God, in the sense, wasn't, didn't instigate, but yet God in his sovereign purpose allowed his hindrance, not that where he was hindered, he couldn't go back. Paul was preaching the gospel there. He was doing kingdom work. He was doing kingdom business, and people were responding to the gospel, and any time that the gospel is being preached, people are being saved, and lives are being transformed, guess what? The enemy doesn't like that. Jesus said, don't be surprised that they come after you. They came after me. Okay? Jesus, through the apostle Paul, and that's when we read Acts, what is happening here? Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. They will not ultimately be able to withstand. So the first thing I want you to look at this morning is we just kind of unpack this a little bit topically this morning about the enemy of the church is notice with me I'm going to uh, look at four aspects but today Lord willing we will only cover three maybe two but uh, depends I won't I won't uh, won't belabor we'll, we'll pick it up next week if we're short on time because I really think that this is something that's important and that's the beauty of when you teach through a book of the Bible, and when you come to things, you can kind of just stop a little bit, say, let's spend a little time here. Let's, let's work that out and make sure we have understanding here. And so the first aspect that I want you to notice as we talk about the enemy of the church is, number one, the existence of Satan as our adversary. The existence of Satan as our adversary. Take your Bibles and at least turn or find, take a left and drive a little bit to the left and you'll find the book of Ezekiel, or at least make a note of it, that I want you to just be reminded, if, and this may be new, this may be familiar, but it's just important to kind of visit some of these things, but I want to look at several scriptures. They will not be on the screen because I didn't want to read them all in detail, but I just want to reference them, is Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12 through 18. 
And in this context, we see that the Ezekiel, the prophet, in the context, he's speaking about an individual by the name of the king of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. As we know from a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament, there's an immediate context, and then there's a future context. So in the immediate context, he's talking about the, this king of the region or city of Tyre. But we know as you read through it that it can't just be limited to him because it's speaking about someone beyond. And, and what we know is speaking beyond is it gives us a little insight concerning the demise or fall of Satan uh, before, before even creation. Uh, we know from this passage that Satan was the highest angel and was blameless from his creation. He was created blameless. Uh, verse 15 of Ezekiel 28 says that unrighteousness was found in him. Where did this unrighteousness derive from? And again, I hope you use your Bibles because this is all in there. And, it, and it's important to at least make the notation on some notes. But where did this unrighteousness come? Verse 17 of Ezekiel 28 says... It was as a result of his pride. He wanted what God had. He wanted to ascend to where God was. And the prophet says, speaking again prophetically of what took place, the spirit of rebellion against God was at his heart. And verse 17 says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. And it reveals that, uh, that as an archangel, he was created with tremendous beauty and perfection uh, to, uh, that, that ultimately caused this corruption. The sin that Satan committed, the pride, was not something that God created. It was something that issued from him as a result of his pride in wanting to be like God. And in verse 18, or actually verse 16 of Ezekiel 28, uh, the Bible says that God cast him down, uh, kicked him out of, out of his presence. Uh, and as a result of his sin, verse 18 of Ezekiel 28, uh, the Lord says, I have brought fire from the midst of you, it has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. So God cast this angel, this fallen angel, identified as Lucifer, or Satan by the term that is used in, in, our, uh, in, the, in the New Testament, uh, that he was rejected, kicked out of heaven, if you would, and eventually would be destroyed. But the passage also um, is that, the reason I said, because if he was created in beauty, it could not be speaking of another human being. So it has to be, again, alluding to someone beyond just that king of Tyre. Now that may be a little confusing. Interesting, in verse 13 of Ezekiel 28, it identifies, again, why it's speaking beyond him, because it says... Uh, that you were that speaking to Lucifer, Satan, it identifies that he was in the Garden of Eden. The king of Tyre, to my knowledge, was not in the Garden of Eden. So again, that has a double meaning there, and I don't just uh, shed a little light on that. Another companion passage concerning the fall of Satan is found in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 15. And again, I'm just going to read it, but you may want to make a note of it and go back and read it. Verse 12 
same event writes, how you, have, how you are fallen from heaven, and the ESV says, O day star, son of dawn, King James says Lucifer, just again, there's a lot of translational issues there, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low, verse 13, Isaiah 14, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. This is what he said in his heart. I will sit on the mountain of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Verse 14, I will ascend, he says. And you circle all the I wills. I wills. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Do you see what, it's, you see what is going on in his heart? But the Lord says, but you were brought down to Sheol, to hell, to the far reaches of the pit. So... So that gives you an indication. Remember Jesus said in um, Luke 10, 18, Jesus said that I saw, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Jesus said that. Before Jesus was incarnate, made flesh, the pre-incarnate God of very gods, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, Luke 10, 18. But it's interesting in Revelation 12, 4, that Satan, the Bible says, did not fall alone. Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, says that a third of the stars, meaning a third of demons or angels, went with Satan. Okay, And in verse 9 of Revelation 12, it says this great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, and the Bible says in Revelation 12, 9, that he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Revelation 12, 4, as I said, says a third of them. How many is that? I don't know. It was a lot. Um, it was a lot. But again, the reason that I mention that is because don't derive your view of Satan from Hollywood or novels. Because sometimes they portray, how many, I remember in, um, I don't know where I was, but years ago, you'd, in the mall, there would be these shops in there that would sell posters and paintings or whatever. And I remember there was one that I remember that, you know, you could, a poster or a painting or something. And it was this, this picture somebody had painted, and it was like, it was like the Lord, or maybe, maybe it was Gabriel, one of the angels, I don't know. Uh, I don't have their pictures, so I couldn't identify him, all right? So, but it was some type of angelic being playing chess with what appeared to be the devil over the world, as though that's kind of the way things are. It's this, it's this cosmic Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader battle. That is not a biblical view. Satan is not what we call omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. I don't think he can read your mind. Um, that, and so he has these demons, these third of fallen angels that are with him to do his bidding, okay? So the devil can't be at your house and at my house at the same time, all right? And he's not. But anyway, uh, and hopefully he's not at your house. He can't, be, he can't be running the affairs in Iran and North Korea and be, all right? So you get that, all right? So 
So this one-third, uh, we know from Matthew twenty-two thirty that angels cannot procreate, so their number is, is not any more than it was in the past. They can't self-perpetuate. The Bible says in Revelation 5.11, describing holy angels as, as myriads and myriads, that's 10,000. In other words, it was a big number, okay? It was a lot of them, um, Talking about Satan's existence, we at least see his activity on the earth first appear in Genesis 3.1. Remember when he was in Eden with Adam and Eve? That's where he appears. And in Revelation 20.10, he leaves and passes off the earthly scene to be damned to hell for eternity. Now, in summary, throughout world history, Satan has attempted to continually send to God's throne, God's power. That's what he desires. He wants God's glory. And he also wants to command an allegiance and obedience of the human race. So the existence of our adversary is in just that cursory brief is clearly enunciated in Scripture, okay? The Bible has a lot to say about it. But here's, here's something I want you to uh, be reminded of. 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul reminds believers, Christians, that we are not to be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his desires. You see that? We are not to be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Designs that is nuame uh, in the Greek, that means mind, thoughts, uh, designs. In other words, he has nothing new. Everything, his modus operandi, we're fully aware of his strategies. And not that we become obsessive with trying to become demonologists, but we understand his strategies so that as we take on the full armor, as we do what Colossians 3 says, to set our minds on things above and not on things of the earth, we should not be victimized by these designs or strategies. And that brings us secondly, not just the existence of Satan as the adversary, but secondly, an examination of Satan's attacks. Examination of Satan's attacks. Satan's targets. Primarily, his number one target has always been Christ. Has always been Christ. Why? Because Christ came to destroy the works of the enemy. Remember Hebrews 2? Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. And through death he, Christ, might, what? Destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver, so Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He came to deliver us. Satan has unsuccessfully tried to thwart and destroy the messianic line. From the time that he heard, Genesis 3.15, about there would be one that would be sent by the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head, the first prophetic verse about the coming of Christ, that everything from then on, he has been trying to destroy that messianic line, trying to destroy Israel, trying to corrupt 
uh, the, the, uh, the nation and, and its line. You remember even in Matthew 10, he, 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 he uh, if you could call it inspired, King Herod to, to find this child and murder all the children that were within that framework of perhaps being born in Matthew 10. He has been cursed and damned from the beginning, but yet in his attempt, he has attempted to destroy Christ. That's always been his plot, whether it's through destroying and corrupting the messianic line, through corrupting the nation of Israel. Uh, In Matthew 4, Luke 4, he tried to corrupt uh, and conquer Jesus in the wilderness. Remember, why should you be hungry? You're the son of God. Command these stones to be turned into some bread. Then he said, well, hey, if you, uh, if you just jumped from the pinnacle of the temple, you don't have to do all this. People will see you be caught with the hands of angels as you float down, and they'll all see that you're the Messiah, and you can just skip all this stuff. And they'll just show your glory now. And when that didn't work, Satan offered him and said, look, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you just bow and worship me. But we know through the cross, the devil, even though he perhaps thought he had had a victory, remember, and this is important, I'm trying to remember who, who said this, it didn't original with me. They say, well, you know, the devil, he knows the Bible. But here's the difference. He doesn't have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to understand the Bible. He has access to the data. He just can't put it together. You with me? We have the Holy Spirit. Greater is He who is in us, right? So just because He has access to the data, it's gibberish. And that's why the very thing that would lead to His ultimate eternal damnation was the cross. He thought that was a good scheme to destroy Jesus. When in actuality, it was the very thing that sealed His doom. Satan opposes everything Christ does. Why? Because Jesus came in grace and truth. Remember what Jesus said in John 8, 44, when he was speaking to the religious leaders that were being used by Satan to destroy him and and plotting his death early on? He says to these so-called religious leaders, verse 44, notice what he says, You are of your father the devil. Now, if I was a disciple, I'd say, you know, Jesus, come on, you need to soften your message a little bit. He didn't soften anything. He says, you have your father, look at what he says, speaking to these, these Pharisees, these scribes, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Speaking of the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan opposes Christ because Acts 10.38 says that God has anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And Satan continues to attack Christ. When you look at his, his 
plans, and you even know a little bit about church history, early on, if you know a little bit about the early church councils who came after the apostles, that some of the very first things they had to deal with, even in the New Testament, before the New Testament and the apostles uh, died, they were dealing with attacks concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Satan always aims his big guns at Jesus. And if he can make Jesus less God, if he can make him uh, less than who the Word of God uh, says he is, and one of the red flags always of cults and false doctrines is they will always have a defective view of the person of Jesus. Mormonism teaches that Jesus and Lucifer were actually spirit brothers. Jehovah's Witnesses deny the full deity of Jesus as the Son of God, God of very God. Word of faith, prosperity, that Jesus, when he died, he had to spend time in hell to be born again. Hello? You see, Satan always aims, always aims at Christ. And consequently, he aims at those who follow Christ. And Satan targets Christians. Believers are another target of Satan. Remember in Revelation 12.10, Revelation 12.10, and I, John, the, the one receiving this vision, says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ or His Messiah have come for the what? The accuser of our brothers. That's Satan. That's literally what Satan's name means, accuser. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan brings vicious accusations against all who believe in Christ. I remember one story of the Martin Luther. This is Reformation Month and Martin Luther whom God used in 1519 to nail those doctrinal statements on the uh, church at Wittenberg. And that um, one time he was in his study at the Wartburg Castle, I believe, and he was, had a sense that the devil was just, just railing against him, accusing him and bringing up every sin. And it says that Martin Luther took his inkwell, and I suppose wherever he was, you know, I'm not attributing any of this vision, I'm just telling you what he, you know, and this took that inkwell and threw it over in the area where he perhaps was sensing this demonic presence there and threw his inkwell at him. I don't think that did any good, but he said, yeah, all those things are true, but they're all forgiven by the blood of Christ. You see, Satan is always trying to accuse who causes you to doubt your salvation? God? No. Who brings up your past? Who dredges up all the accusations of how dare could you be here in church? If they only knew what you did this week, what you thought, what you watched. See, he's an accuser. He's always going after you, always pressing. And his activity is always to move you from the solid rock of Christ and His Word to think independently of those things. Wasn't that exactly what took place in Genesis chapter 3? 
the very thing that took place in Genesis chapter 3 with Eve, and consequently Adam. I want to make sure he gets included, ladies. Uh, did God really say, he said? Did he really say? You see, that's always been his attack. You can't trust God's word. But our minds are always the target of this warfare. Our brains, our I don't mean the intellect, but our minds, because that's how we receive the word. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5, for the weapons of our warfare, and it is warfare, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's the reason you should guard your mind. You know, like a computer, garbage in, garbage out. What you expose your mind to. There's things that aren't really bad, bad, you know, but there's things and stories. Sometimes I've found that even, because I like watching those, a lot of those crime shows, documentaries and, you know, A&E or Oxygen, where they just, you know, crazy wives that are killing their husbands and crazy husbands, you know, and all this nonsense. And after a while, I'm like, man, I'm just feeding all that stuff in my brain. I don't need all this stuff, what? right? Because I don't want to think my wife, you know, suspect her or anything. No. But I mean, but you know, we expose ourselves to just, there's just some stuff under the guise of news or information that's salacious and, and just reeks of garbage. You're like, why do I even want to hear this stuff? Right? And so sometimes we have to exercise a little of Colossians 3 2 to set our minds on things above. Paul said in Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. One of the ways that Satan attacks, even today, is the massive persecution of Christians around the world. I was looking up some statistics, and a report that came out this year says that the number one place that's the hardest to be a Christian is North Korea. Secondly is Afghanistan. And I don't then this was before well, before what happened. I'll leave my commentary out. Third most dangerous place to follow Jesus is Somalia and then Libya and then Pakistan. Where and then it went and gave me another list of where Christians will face the most violence. You know what the number one country of the most violence against Christians? Pakistan. Now, here's something that makes you, well, it should make you really mad. Since 9-11, the United States has given 15 to $16 billion to Pakistan. Just last year, we gave over $1.5 billion to Pakistan. And yet, Christians face the most violence there of any country right now in the world. Do you have a problem with that? I got a problem with that. That's free. But here, let me just interject something here, and I think I'm going to stop, and we'll pick it up in the next point for time. And this kind of is the best way to interject this, because sometimes it will be a question. And the question is, 
Can a Christian be possessed by a demon? Or the devil, but a demon. I believe the weight of Scripture is clearly that a genuine, born-again, spirit-filled believer cannot, cannot be possessed by a demon. Can they be oppressed? Yeah. You bet. Possessed? No. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. And I point to you 2 Corinthians chapter 6. A Paul, when he wrote, and I'm using the New Living Translation, that says that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit could never cohabitate, cohabit with demons. He says, verse 15, what harmony, and this is from the New Living Translation, what harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we, speaking to believers, are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Colossians 1.13, Paul says that God, that Christ, past tense, has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. He has rescued us from where? The kingdom of darkness and brought us in or transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son. When you are born again, when you are saved, you are delivered from the slavery of sin. You are delivered from the, sl- from the slavery of, 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 of Satan's instigation that works in the hearts of unbelievers, and you have the protection of the Holy Spirit against Satan. You cannot be demon-possessed. You can be oppressed. I believe you can engage and go down roads where you can be oppressed. But that's different than being possessed by a demon. A Christian. Remember when we studied in 1 John 4 4? It says, But you belong to God, the New Living Translation. But you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the Spirit who lives in you is greater. Notice big S, little s, is greater than the Spirit who lives in the world. Greater is he who is in you, the King James says, than he who is in the world. You know what? We're still not to 11.30. Let me just do this third and that way. I'll talk fast if you listen fast. How about that? So, bear with me. This is important, all right? Because there's a lot of nonsense that goes on under the guise of spiritual warfare. And the question I ask myself going back is how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God And what Paul said, that Satan was a hindrance. So we looked at his existence of the adversary. We've examined Satan's attacks. Let me just wrap it up with this third and final point for today. And that is what I call the extent of Satan's authority. Although demons cannot possess, inhabit believers, the Bible indicates that God permits in His sovereignty 
Satan to afflict Christians externally with adversity. I'll be honest with you. We don't always certainly know the reason behind that. Uh, And there's a great mystery there. But we do know, because you have these twin truths, you have the sovereignty of God, that there is nothing, there's not an atom, there's not a molecule running rogue in God's creation beyond His sovereign control. But at the same time, you have the adversary who is at work and always trying to block hinder God's sovereign purposes to work all things together for good. But here's here's something you can take to the bank. God is bigger than the bad. God is in control. Let me give you some examples. These will be all familiar, and they're in no particular order. What about Joseph? Remember the story of Joseph as a young boy sold into slavery and went through all sorts of horrible experiences? Remember what Joseph said In Genesis 50, at the very end, when he finally, through that moment, he revealed himself to his brothers, he said, but Joseph said to them, Genesis 50, 19 through 20, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Now, that doesn't make any sense to you if you don't know the story. But he says, am I not in the place of God? But notice this, notice the language. As for you, he's talking to his brothers, as for you, you meant, your motive, your heart was what? Evil. It was evil against me, comma, thank God for the comma, but God, are we reading the same thing here? Verse, yeah, verse, yeah, okay, sorry. But God meant it, intended, designed it, purposed it for what? For good. Because had Joseph not gone there, remember what was at threat? Go way back. There arose a Pharaoh. Remember later on after Joseph? There arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And he saw these Jews that were multiplying like crazy. And says, we got to do something about this. You want to see where anti-Semitic thinking, it didn't begin with Hitler. It began way, why? Because what was Satan wanting to do? He was wanting to destroy the line, destroy Messiah, destroy Israel. He wanted to kill it in its, in its crib. But see, God had brought them there, and what did they do in Egypt? What did the people of God do in Egypt? Kind of like a massive incubator. They multiplied like rabbits. Like crazy. Kosher rabbits. God's purpose used evil because he had a bigger purpose. I don't think Joseph, I think that was a revelation of the Holy Spirit in that. I don't think Joseph, when he was sitting in jail month after month, I don't think he was sitting in there singing Jehovah Jireh, saying, whew, I'm glad I'm in the purposes of God. Oh man, he's like, these scoundrels I've helped, they don't even remember me. How about Job? Oh, we always go to Job. Perseverance of Job, classic illustration. And I do have this on the screen. Job 1, beginning at verse 7, takes us behind the scenes of an exchange between God and Satan in heaven. Verse 7, Job 1, The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. 
And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Remember the Bible says he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may what? Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered, verse 9, the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. In other words, the only reason Job serves you is because he's rich and wealthy and you're, you're protecting him. Verse 11, Satan says, But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. And I guarantee you, guarantee he didn't say that, but he will curse you to your face. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. Notice Satan, I mean God determined his boundaries of how Satan could work. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. He was allowed to take away Job's possessions, but was prohibited from harming. And so Satan thought, look, you take everything away from him, and he'll curse you, and we'll all laugh in your face, God. But that didn't kind of work, that didn't go the way he thought, did it? In fact, in that same chapter, down at verse 20, the Bible says that Job arose and tore his robe after all these things came upon him. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. And what did he do? He didn't curse God. He fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, if you want to hear something crazy, that statement in verse 21 People that hold to a word of faith and positive confession said the reason all the trouble came upon Job is because he gave a negative confession about the Lord takes away because they say the Lord doesn't take away. And all this came upon Job because he gave a negative confession. Eh, wrong, okay? That's crazy, all right? How about Judas? Remember him? Remember Judas? How does that work out? Another example of God's sovereign purposes behind... Satanic activity. In the upper room, right before the crucifixion, Christ told his disciples that one of them would betray him. John 13, 21. When the disciples asked the Lord to identify the person, Christ responded in John 13, verse 26 through 27. Jesus answered, said, you know, Lord, who is it? It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel of bread, the Bible says Satan entered into him. Judas possessed him. And Jesus said, what you are going to do, do quickly. See, the reason Satan possessed him is because Judas was not a believer. He was not a true believer. He was exposed to Christ for three years. In fact, he was so trustworthy, he was the treasurer of the group. 
He was in charge of the money. And later John would write, he was dipping into the till. That was something John had to get off his chest, I guess, when he wrote that later. But, but he was with Jesus for three years. He observed the miracles. He heard the teaching. He observed Jesus' perfection, his power, his purity. But Judas, even though he was exposed to all the benefits and things of Jesus himself, refused refused to bow the knee to Jesus as Lord. That just is a sad reminder. You can be in church your whole life and still be lost as last year's Easter egg. You can be lost by, and think of America, you got more Christian stuff pummeling your way, more exposure. Judas had it all. And the Bible says God allowed Satan to enter him and turned him over. Because why? It was necessary in the providence of God. In fact, even that was foretold in the Old Testament. Well, we talked about Jesus being under the sovereign purposes. That leads us to Christ. Question, who killed Jesus? The Romans? The Jews? God? Well, Peter gives some insight in Acts 2. Remember that day of Pentecost sermon? He says in the New American Standard I have on the screen, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. You all know about it. This man, look at verse 23, this man, look at the language, delivered over by what? The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Now what it says? And, comma, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Kind of like what Joseph said. God did it, but you're evil. We're both at work there. It wasn't that Jesus was a runaway prophet who got himself in trouble. His death. As I mentioned prophetically, Genesis 3.15, in fact, it even says in Revelation that he is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And last, I'll just submit to you the Apostle Paul, the author of 1 Thessalonians. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, says that, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he was receiving as an apostle, Paul says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, and he calls this thorn what? A messenger of Satan, the ESV says, to harass, or your version might say buffet me, not buffet me, I know it's near lunch, but don't. But he was a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass and to keep me from becoming conceited. A thorn in the flesh was given to him. Now, many people are trying to figure out what this thorn is. Maybe persecution and physical issues, epilepsy, malaria. I mean, all of the gamut, eye disease. You know, because at one time he says, look at what big letters I'm writing, that he had eyesight issues. 
What was the thorn? We don't really know, but we see that whatever it was was given to him to buffet him, which, which that word is, speaks of a bone-crushing blow of the fist. It wasn't just some little, you know, some little issue with his toe or something. It was something that he says in verse 8, he says three times. Now again, three times, again, when you see repetition, it just speaks way beyond that. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. I mean, he went before the Lord continually, continually, continually. Now I think it's interesting that Paul didn't attempt to bind, rebuke, or cast out this demon. He took it to the Lord. He prayed. Because God was able to do what Paul prayed, but God, for whatever God's sovereign reason, chose not to do it. So Paul got mad and left the ministry. No. Read on. Read on. Verse 9 through 10. But he, God, said to me, after I've pleaded three times, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, Paul speaking now, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. Paul willingly accepted God's design for his life. Can I give you one more and I promise that'll be it? I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, about Paul again. And I, re, I use this a lot. Philippians 1.12. Remember Paul wrote, this is one of the prison letters. Philippians, uh, Ephesians, Colossians. He's in prison. And as he's writing to the church at Philippi, Philippians 1.12, he wants them to know, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what has happened to him? Well, he's been put in prison in Rome. Under house arrest, basically. It gets worse. But he is not doing what he's wanting to do, to preach the gospel. He's in jail. He's in prison. And eventually he'd be let out for a while, and later he would be arrested again, taken to Rome, and beheaded. But he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me, bad stuff, he says, it has really done what? Served to advance the gospel. Paul, a long time ago, figured out that it's not me who lives, it's Christ in me. He recognized that God purchased him and God can do what he wants with his life. And if that means serving the sovereign purposes of God, being under house arrest, if that advances, you say, well, how do you get that? Read on. Look at verse 13. It has served to advance the gospel, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Your version might say Praetorian guard. That is the elite Roman guards because Paul was such a big VIP. They want to make sure nothing happened. They heard about that, that, that jail situation in Philippi. They want to make sure he was protected by Caesar's best. They're all chained around him, listening to him write and talk. 
What do you think they're listening to day in and day out? It says it has become known throughout this whole imperial guard that, that, I'm, that has surrounded me and to all the rest that I'm, my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. So not only has God in his sovereign genius figured out a way to get the gospel into the very heart of the Roman government. Hello? He's encouraging brothers at the same time. You think Paul, who was chained day in and day night, and they'd go through shift changes, he'd tell them about that conversion experience. Talk about the time of miracles and things and what Paul did and about Christ. It doesn't say who all became a believer, but I guarantee you they heard the gospel. And God in his genius, just like he tucked away a Daniel with a Nebuchadnezzar, God tucked his gospel right there in the most pagan, godless, satanic rule. He put believers right. God can, listen, God can convert Kim Jong-un, whatever the un or ill or whatever. He can do it like that. You see, there's nowhere or no place that Satan has the barriers up that God can't get through. God can do what he will when he wants. All I want you to see is that Satan's power, influence, and authority is limited. And ultimately, and there's great mystery, and there's a lot of questions, but it's limited by the sovereignty of God.